crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe. together. There is strength in the name of the Lord. There is power and there is hope in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sing together. There is strength in the name of the Pastor Nathan and I are tag-teaming this morning, uh, but uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, uh, the section of the triumphal entry. Jesus has 
uh, is coming into Jerusalem. And uh, please listen along on the, or, and watch along on the screen uh, as we read verses 36 to 40 <clears throat> together. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. As we move into our time of prayer, I'd like to share with you, uh, many of you know our cooperation with Agape Women's Services. And I've had the opportunity to, to work with this ministry, and they've passed along a couple of uh, real-time prayer requests. Uh, I have several, and I'll be praying for one in each of the services today. Of course, uh, some details have been changed. Sensitive details have been left out because we want to love and protect our neighbors. But I'd ask you to, to join me in praying for really specific needs as we go to the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? King Jesus, we believe that there's nothing better than to praise your name and to declare your loving kindness in the morning. So as we gather, we gather with joy and with purpose. We recognize that the least of your deeds are worthy of our gathering. They're worthy of our all and of all the honor that we could ever bestow upon you. And so we ask that today, that even in the storms and in the rain, that you would bless this Sabbath day that you would stir our hearts to praise you and to love you, to turn from our sin and to walk in fellowship with Jesus. Today we declare your greatness and your power. We see that yours is the glory, yours is the victory, and for that we praise you. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours, and yours is the kingdom, and you are good at everything that you do. We confess that all riches and all honor come from you, and that power and strength are in your hands. So, Father, we know that it is by your mercy alone that we come to this place. So, Father, we ask that your power would be active in this service. We ask that you would move our hearts to, to where our chief delight is to dedicate ourselves to your glory rather than our own. And for this, we need your help. Father, we join this morning with Agape Women's Services in praying that your will would be done in the brokenness of our lives. You've told us that you hear the desire of the afflicted and that you will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear. And so, Father, we pray for this woman, particularly this morning, one that came in to uh, came in this week from out of state who is pregnant with another man's child. We pray, Father, that you would have mercy on her, that you would give her courage, that you would help her to know that you are a God who loves her and who cares for her needs. 
We pray, Father, that you would shower your compassion upon her and help her to know that you are a friend of sinners. Father, please help her to trust your provision. Give her courage to preserve the life of this child and trust that you will preserve her life. We thank you for your power in all of these circumstances and trust that you will bring glory to Christ and to your name in each of these situations. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Serve an amazing God who hears us when we call to him, when we pray to him.
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 19. John 19. I confess that it is with trembling that I stand in the pulpit this morning. That's because I've been given the awesome responsibility, the privilege of expounding upon the crucifixion and the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I feel the weight of this text, and I feel the weight of your lives and your souls. I feel it for you. Because, friends, we know that there is nothing more important in your life than what you will hear today. I know that this is a normal Sunday. I know that you've come, as many of you often do. But what's taking place has gravity. It has weight. Because there's nothing more important in your life than how you respond to the crucified Jesus Christ. And so without much introduction, without illustration, without apology, I'm calling for everyone who can hear my voice, whether you are in this room or online, to turn your heart and your attention to the words of John chapter 19, which display for us the crucified King of the Jews. Would you listen as I read, starting in verse 16? So... Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, 
So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Would you please pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, what could be said to do justice to the glory of the crucified Christ? So, Father, I pray that this morning you would overcome every distraction and every weakness and that you would exalt Christ among us. I pray that your spirit would move with power so that we would see you with more clarity, more reverence, and more awe. Accomplish all of your purposes for our time together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, before we go any further, I feel like I should offer a word of warning to all of us. These words, these are not ordinary events, and this is not an ordinary story. The Bible teaches us that there are spiritual and demonic forces at work, even right now, working to keep us from truly understanding and feeling the weight of the cross. There may be some here today who do not see it, who do not get it, who do not understand the cross because you're blind to it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. So there will be some here perhaps today who are unimpressed and bored. Your calloused hearts will not be moved, your affections perhaps not stirred. My friend, if that is you, I plead with you to beware. Satan is at work at your, in your life right now at this very moment. He has plans of horror and destruction and will work to distract you. But there's also a subtle danger for those of us who are Christians, whose, whose eyes have been opened to the glory of Christ, who do worship him. For us, Satan has a wishful, tentative agenda as well. Though we may not be blind to the cross, our problem is that we are familiar with it, perhaps comfortable. I think there is a great danger for those of us who are Christians to think, oh, the cross, I already know about the cross. What more do I need to learn? For those of us who are Christians, the problem is that the cross has become so familiar, so civilized that we often barely even notice its presence. Just imagine, do you think that you would have noticed if you came up this, if you came in this morning and on stage there was a guillotine beside me? What about an electric chair? And yet there's a cross on our stage, an instrument of torture. There's a cross featured on the side of our building that you can see when you drive up. It's on our necklaces. It's on our cars. Friends, I say this only to illustrate how easy it is to grow too familiar, too comfortable, perhaps even bored by the cross. I've met so many Christians for whom the cross is little more than a decorative fixture in our lives and in our hearts, rather than this shocking worship-inspiring source of joy and love. 
To all my Christian brothers and sisters, let me say this, that knowing about the cross is only the beginning of the Christian life. For the cross to make any difference in our everyday lives, you must be increasing daily in a sense of its ghastly ore as well as its awesome majesty. Gentlemen, do, do you mind? Do you mind toning? <laughs> Thank you. Now that we know, now that we know the cross, we must grow to glory in it, to where we can say with the Apostle Paul that I will never boast about Christ. I will never boast about anything except for the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, for all of us who are here, I invite you to come and to consider John's account of the cross. There are, of course, many different angles that we can view this from, each one beautiful and awe-inspiring in its own way. But today, we are going to view the cross from John's vantage point, as described in his gospel. We're going to focus on what he focused on and what he emphasized. You see, for John, the cross shows us that, that it is God's plan for his king to die for his people. From the very beginning, it was God's plan for his king to die for his people. And as we consider this account, we will see three depictions of Christ. One, he is the rejected king. Two, the repulsive king. And three, the rescuing king. Let's start with this, the rejected king. Now I say king because over the last several chapters of John, John has been attaching this idea within the increasing hostility that Jesus is facing to the idea that Jesus is a king. He appears before Pilate on trial back in chapter 18, verse 33, and it's the, the whole trial is centered around this one issue. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate directly asked Jesus that. And then again in chapter 1837, he says, so are you a king? And Jesus' answer to all this was very clear. Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. And this is why Jesus was in trouble, because he claimed to be a king. Now this claim to be a king, this, I, this theme of king, really gives a lot of color to what is taking place in the mocking of Jesus and in the details of the crucifixion. This so-called king was given a crown, a crown of thorns. He was dressed in the purple robe of royalty. He was even given a parade. Chapter 19, verse 3 says that when the soldiers mocked him and struck him, they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and then struck him with their hands. When Pilate presented Jesus to the crowds in 19, verses 14 and 15, the way he presented them is interesting. He said, shall I crucify your king? To which the chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. And all of this helps us understand why John includes all these details about the controversy over the signage that was hung over Jesus. Did you pick up on that in this reading? It's customary for the Romans to use signs like this so that the public would know why a crucifixion is taking place. The sign would say who the criminal is, where he's from, and what he had done. The text tells us that this sign was written in three languages so that the whole world could read 
Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But the Jews were so enraged, they were so disgusted by the thought of Jesus as king that they lobbied to have it changed. Just think of it. They saw Jesus was being crucified and they were discontent with the signage. So, so we ask, what, what do we make of these details? Why would John be so descriptive and, and be sure to include this? Well, it seems to me that John is being very intentional about this one point. Jesus is being rejected because he claimed to be king. If you know your Bible, perhaps you're familiar with this pattern that time and time again throughout Israel's history, God raises up a rescuer. He raises up a king, a deliverer, a judge, and time and time again they reject him. It's a pattern that begins actually with Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the prophets the pattern is so common. God delivers, God deli- God's deliverers are rejected by those that he sent to deliver. Perhaps you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that Israel even rejected God himself as being their king. They demanded to have a human king instead of God Almighty. It's like the whole golden calf debacle, but worse. But we really need to hone in on the rejection of King David. As you may know, Jesus cited and quoted David multiple times while he was on the cross. He does that in verse 24, quoting Psalm 22. And again in verse 28, quoting Psalm 69. And as you remember about David's life, David faced incredible rejection and suffering. Even though he was king, he was rejected. You remember his son chased him around with a spear. The Psalms attest that David seemed to have a great many of enemies, enemies even on every side. If you've read Psalm chapter 22, the great crucifixion psalm it's called, you know how eerily it anticipates the details of the cross. Well, this is no coincidence. I believe that when Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 on the cross, he's not just demonstrating that the Bible is useful and that it can be a comfort for us when we're suffering, but he's going quite a bit further in that he's identifying with David. Jesus is taking up David's throne. He's saying that even though I am on this cross, I am the true man after God's own heart. I am the true, the better king of Israel. I am the everlasting king who does not sin and who will sit on the throne of David forever. And yet, once again, God's people despised and hated their righteous deliverer king. They rejected him. And so they made him a repulsive king. Repulsive king. John tells us that after flogging and mocking Jesus, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And so in verse 17, John begins to give us an account of the details of what a crucifixion entails. John's words here, his accounts, his details are consistent with what we know of the practice of a Roman crucifixion, a a practice that was so horrific that it blurred the lines between a barbaric and civil society. Every dimension of a crucifixion 
was crafted creatively to maximize not only the physical agony of the condemned, but also his shame. A crucifixion was visually designed to make the victim as repulsive as possible according to his crime. It was so brutal that a Roman citizen could not be crucified without special permission from the emperor. And as a part of their punishment, criminals would be forced to carry the cross beam, the middle section of their cross, the shorter cross member, all the way to the execution site where the upright gibbet would already be in place. There the victim would be stripped naked. He would be forced to lie on his back, stretched out his arms, where seven-inch crude nails would be driven to attach his arms to the crossbeam. That beam would then be hoisted, body attached, dangling to the vertical beam which was in the ground. From there, additional nails would be driven either from the front or the sides of the victim's ankles and feet to attach him to the upright. This would require nails which shattered many of the 26 bones and decimated more than 100 tendons and ligaments which provide structure to the foot. And so the Romans would hang their victims, often bludgeoned to a bloody mess of flesh in the hot sun to publicly bake while they waited for their own death. In order to breathe, Jesus would have to push down on his legs and push down on his pierced feet. He'd have to pull up with his arms as he tried to expand his chest cavity to get oxygen into his lungs. Every breath would have been complicated by dehydration, extreme loss of blood, and muscle spasm. Eventually, the strain would become too great and the victim would suffocate. Sometimes it would take hours. Sometimes it would take days. And so the man who healed children, who drew near to lepers, who fed the hungry, was left to suffocate outside the city between two insurrectionists, two terrorists. Perhaps we can make some progress imagining the physical torture that Jesus faced, but, but not much. But it's even harder to comprehend the depths of shame of the cross. The whole spectacle was designed to make the criminal repulsive. It was designed to make him look disgusting, like the kind that people would hide their faces from. You wouldn't want to see him. Crucifixions were public intentionally. Outside the city, of course, away from the civility of normal everyday life, on a hill that some poet named Golgotha because it looked like a skull. So there they crucified Jesus. They hung him on a cross, making it very clear. I cannot imagine a more clear way to say, we reject you as our king. Jesus was the rejected, repulsive king. Dear friends, he was also the rescuing king. One of the things that John goes out of his way to show is that no matter how repulsive the cross is, every detail of it was accomplished according to God's plan. 
every detail. As we've said, there are two specific Old Testament fulfillments that are noted in this passage. The first appears in verse 24, where we see soldiers casting lots to to divide up and distribute the clothing of the naked dying man. Have Have you ever wondered why this part of the story is included? I mean, have you ever wondered, like, with all that's going on, why are we given details about what happens to the clothing of Jesus? That seems insignificant. I bet the soldiers thought little of it. It's probably no big deal to them. But every single one of the four Gospels includes this story. And the question is, why? Why, does it, why do we have the details? Well, verse 24 tells us it was to fulfill Scripture. To fulfill Scripture. It's, it echoes the words that were written by King David a thousand years before, where he wrote these exact words saying, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The same thing is true there in verse 28, where Jesus is said to fulfill the scripture, he says, I thirst. Speaking of another Davidic psalm, in Psalm 68. So I ask again, why is this important? Why are we told about these? Why, why, is the, why is the fulfillment of Scripture so front and central in this text? Well, I think there's two main reasons. Well, first of all, the fulfillment of these words teaches us that the cross was not an accident. It has been God's plan from the very beginning, which is staggering to think about. A thousand years before the crucifixion and 2,000 years ago at the crucifixion, God sovereignly orchestrated a thousand tiny details about clothing and about dice and about soldiers and about thirst to show that he is in charge, even on the cross. You see, when you see God hanging naked on a cross, it's pretty tempting, isn't it, to think that he's not really in charge or that he's not really that great. Right? That's our struggle in our own suffering, isn't it? We lose our job and we think God's not in charge, God's not that great. How much more if he himself is on the cross? But even when his bodily fluids are puddling at the foot of the cross, he reigns. Even in that moment, he is showing that this is all a part of the plan. This was no accident. Things are not out of control. Everything is happening according to God's plan. Why? Because he is king. And that's what kings do. They rule. Jesus was ruling. Friends, even when it looks like Satan is triumphing, God controls the dice. What a great comfort to us. My dear friends, do you see this with me? Do you see that from the very beginning of the Bible, God has been unfolding a plan to rescue sinners from death? And he's doing it. He's achieving it. I I think another reason that these fulfillments are so important is because they show us the obedience of Christ. Christ was a victim, but he was a very willing victim. The son was joyfully willing to participate in this plan. He was a part of it. He was not a pawn in the father's plan. The cross was just as much his idea as it was the father's. And Jesus was on the cross because he wanted to be there. He wanted to die so that he could rescue us. 
It's seen even in the details. It's seen even in the grammar of verse 28. The text says that when Jesus uttered, I thirst, he did it for a reason. You can see that there in your Bibles. He did it in order to fulfill the scriptures. In other words, Jesus was obeying. Jesus' thirst was out of obedience to the Father. Even on the cross, Jesus was obeying. It's worth so much reflection. And if that's not enough, consider our Lord bearing his own cross. What a visual, graphic picture of submission as he carries his own cross to be crucified. Or consider how much love flowed out of this man, even while he was on the cross. Jesus loved other people even to the end. Just think of it. While Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for his enemies. He evangelized his neighbors. He even worked out a retirement plan for his mom. What sort of boundless love does this man have? Because I'll tell you that when I'm suffering, I'm not doing those things. And yet when Jesus is suffering, he abounded in love for sinners. Friends, do you see the cross? The cross shows us more than anything else in all the world that it is God's plan for his king to die for his people, and everything was according to that plan. There are just too many ironies in this story to think that it's chance. We can't, I, can't, I can't bear to overlook them. Just think about it like this. Not only did Pilate and the soldiers actually declare that Jesus is the king, but Pilate even made a sign, (laughs) right? Pilate declared multiple times in John 18 that Jesus is king. The soldiers declared that Jesus is king while they were mocking him. They made a sign declaring for the whole world that this is Jesus and that he is the king. Jesus was crucified for being a king and a king that he is. And even though the cross was designed for his rejection, even though the cross was designed for his humiliation, it actually served God's purposes in exalting Christ, in lifting him up. How much sovereignty and control must God have? He even hijacked the signage and used it for his own purposes, the purposes of glorying Christ. And though his crown was thorns, And though his robe was a joke, and though the red carpet was the dolorosus, the cross displays the glory of Jesus Christ. One New Testament scholar said it well. He said, the crucified one is the true king. He is the kingliest king of all because it is he who stretched out on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory. And reigns from the tree. Friends, this is where things must become personal for us. You see, lots of people, especially the kind of people that make their way into a service in the rain on Palm Sunday, are very sympathetic with Jesus. Right now, you might be feeling sorrow or pity. You might even be reaching for Kleenexes, but... That is not enough when we look upon the crucified Lord. If we're really going to understand the cross of Christ and all that it means for us, we, we must go back to, to that multilingual sign. 
the sign that said, the inscription that said, Jesus is king. Friends, that inscription is a three-word summary of the chief complaint that every human being has leveled against God. And here's why. You see, every time we sin, every time that we sin, every time that we choose to break God's law, that we choose to go our own way, we are in rebellion against Jesus as king. That, that rebellion is the very essence of sin. It, 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 sin is when I tell God, don't you tell me what to do. I know what's best. You don't know what's best for my life. As sinners, what sin is is when we boldly wave our do not tread on me flags to God and say, stay out of my details. The Bible teaches us that every single one of us has time and time again rebelled against God's glory. That we've rejected his rule. Every one of us at times has considered ourselves to be smarter than God and we've broken his law. You know what that is? It's insurrection. That's treason. And do you know what the penalty for treason is? It's death. And that's why the cross is so powerful for us as Christians. Because in the gospel, the hero dies for the villain. The king dies for the treasonous peasants. That even though we rejected him as king, the story of the gospel is that Jesus became our sin, which made him repulsive. That's why he became the repulsive king. And then he died in our place, becoming a rescuing king. It was a simple yet glorious substitution. Now, now how does this happen? The Apostle Paul teaches us that this exchange takes place, it's activated by faith. Now, faith isn't simply believing that the cross happened, and it's certainly not decorating your house with it. Faith is not simply, it's not asking Jesus into your heart. Faith means that the king of the Jews has become my king as well. The king of the Jews is now the king of Nathan. I trust him to rule my life. Faith means that you have now made Jesus your king. You've given up the agenda of trying to live as you want to, but are now living according to his rule, his reign, his laws, his kingdom. Warm sentimentalism about the cross will not save you. Faith, repentance, surrender, obedience, that saves you. Jesus was crucified because he claims to be king. And friends, understand this. That is why people hate Jesus, and that's why they hate Christianity, because they hate the thought that Jesus claims to rule their lives. And so we better be sure that we get it right. That for those of us who, who have come to see a strange beauty in this instrument of torture, we don't find his rules oppressive. We find them freeing. Because he loves us. And even though Jesus and following Jesus calls us to die to self, we've come to see that this alone is the true way of joy. The true way of happiness and obedience in this life. We've come to see that if Jesus would die for me, he must love me. And if he loves me, I can trust him. 
He'll die for us. That's how much he loves us. I feel so insufficient to say these things. My friends, the cross shows God's unfathomable love for sinners. The cross shows the power and the sovereignty of God. And that above all else, the cross displays the glory of Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, the King of the world. And so I plead with you, the invitation for you this morning is, let him be your king. Don't rebel. Live in submission to Jesus. Because friends, we need to know this today. The Bible says that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, Pilate will bow. One day, the soldiers will bow. The Pharisees will bow. The crowds will bow. And as one old preacher said, bow now or bow later. Friends, does the cross compel you? Does it stir your heart in love and worship for Christ? Does it inspire you to lay down your life to love other people as Jesus has loved you? Does it inspire you to forgive in the way that you have been forgiven? And above all, does it inspire worship and awe in your heart? Worthy is the Lamb seated on the throne. We crown him now with many crowns, for he reigns victorious. Let me invite you to bow your heads and spend time asking the Lord, how would you need to respond to him today? Take a moment and utter a few words of gratitude and thanksgiving to him for what he has done. And of course, if you've never surrendered your life to following Jesus, pray that prayer to him now. Tell him about your sins. Tell him that you want to be forgiven and commit your life to following him. And for all of us, let us ask the Lord to help us grow in our awe and our reverence of his sacrifice for us. Yes, it's in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand together as we sing triumphantly of the power of the cross. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the By sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. This the power of the cross, Christ became. Took 
the pain written on your face bearing the awesome weight of sin every bitter thought and every evil deed crowning your blood As you go, the Lord would bring these things to your mind and call you to love him more. Our benediction this morning comes from Revelation chapter 1, where we read this. To Christ, 
who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, he's, becoming with the, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Friends, we invite you to come back on Friday. If you have a ticket to our Good Friday service, if not, it will be available online. We'll pray that as you go, you'll be preparing your hearts for Easter. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.